Happy Father's Day to all you uh, men out there on both campuses. Uh, we are grateful that you're here today and want to welcome those that are joining us uh, in Edgewood as well. Uh, today we uh, have a handful of treats out there in both of the uh, lobbies for you gentlemen, and so take advantage of that. Uh, we are sure to add a handful of calories and pounds on you today, and uh, we just want to do our part here at Stone Point. And so we're glad that you're here today. Uh, we're in the middle of a uh, series that we started a few weeks back uh, called Ephesians, and we're literally just walking through the book of Ephesians. Uh, and as we do so today, I'm reminded of a story uh, that I want to share with you. In 1981, uh, there was a, a radio host in Minnesota that came over the air, and he was sharing about a guy who had recently stolen a car in California and the entire country was out for this guy uh, because of the stolen vehicle. And you might be thinking, man, somebody stole my vehicle once and nobody looked for it. Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, this, this guy was one of the most wanted men in America. And the reason why is not because he stole a car, but because in the car, the owner had actually put a pack of crackers in the front seat and it was laced with poison for rats. And they were worried that this man, once he stole the car, was also going to take and eat all of these crackers, and he was going to surely lead himself to death. And so everybody is after this guy, and he thinks he's one of the most chaste men in America. And the reason why is not because he stole the car, but because they're trying to save his life. And so here it was, this guy who was a thief is now trying to be one of those that is rescued. And I don't know about you, but that's ultimately the premise of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And here's the premise, is that you and I uh, ultimately have things around us that are going to lead us surely to death. And there is one who wants to pursue us and has done everything he could to rescue us from the domain of darkness and ultimately the sin problem that evades our culture and our life. And the question is, will we heed the warning and will we quit chasing the things that we see around us and will we turn and will we come back to the very God who wants to save us and rescue us? And that's the premise of Ephesians 2. Now, as we jump into Ephesians 2, let me just kind of give you a quick background on it. Uh, Ephesus is a church uh, that is... Um, is ultimately in a thriving metropolis. It is in a city that is known as one of the seven wonders of the world of the known time. The reason why is because in that city uh, is a temple um, to Artemis and and or to um, I just went blank uh, or to to Diana. And so this this goddess uh, is is ultimately bring a, lots of uh, corruption into the city. And the reason why is because there is um, fornication and ultimately there is a ton of uh, things that are happening that don't honor the Lord as a result of honoring this goddess. And uh, these things are bringing pagan worship and uh, dissension in the midst. And yet Paul uh, has said, hey, this should be a, a light. This church uh, called uh, the Church of Ephesians or the Ephesus Church should be a, a blessing to everyone around. Matter of fact, if you look in Acts uh, chapter 18 and 19, you see the start of this church uh, at the hands of Aquila and Priscilla. Later, Paul would uh, pastor the church himself for a handful of years, would pass it down to his buddy, uh, Timothy. And it's one of the handful of churches in the New Testament. You kind of get to see the picture of what's actually happening with the beginning of the church, the history of the church. And then you get to Revelation chapter 2, and about 60 years after it began, there's this warm Warning, and the warning is to return back to its first love. And really the first love in Ephesians is that, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that they would honor God with the way that they worship, with the way they live their lives, that they would be people known uh, for their purity, for their integrity, for their faithfulness, for their 
their generosity, for their kindness, and for their love towards the, the brethren, for other people. And uh, over time, as you think about the church, um, it's easy for you to take something that God has birthed in you and allow that thing to die out over time. And typically it dies out over time for a handful of reasons. Sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's slothfulness, sometimes um, it's laziness. Uh, really, I think what truly happens, and, and maybe some of you in here can relate, it's just a slow fade. You just look up and and a decade into the church plant, you go, man, we have lost our passion for pursuing people with the gospel. Man, we used to be more generous. We used to not have as many policies and procedures. We used not to have all the tape that we have now. And now it just seems like we're managing stuff as opposed to being the church that God's called us to be. And I think one of the dangers is is that when in the church, one of the things that people manage most is not just systems and all that, but one of the things, if we're not careful, we'll manage our traditions and ultimately our sins. And you can't manage those things. And so Paul is going to talk candidly about that in Ephesians 2. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to jump, jump in with me. Um, and it just says this in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, it says, And you were dead of the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so we have Paul, uh, he comes out of uh, Ephesians 1 and, and Ephesians chapter 1 last week, and we were just looking at all the things that happened uh, through Christ. And ultimately, because of Christ, he's called us to him. He's given us salvation to him. He's given us purpose in him. He's given us faith through him. All of these things uh, so that we would know him to delight in him, and ultimately that we would enjoy the surpassing knowledge and the greatness and the glory of God. In order for us to experience those things, we need to understand what it is that God is rescuing us from. And so we don't have a pack of crackers in our our seat that are going to lead us to rat poison, but what we do have in our seat is something called sin, which is more dangerous than that. And that sin is something that has manifested itself in our lives, and it began when we were born. We were conceived into this. Matter of fact, Paul uses such incredibly strong language that as you look at it, it can almost seem offensive. Here's what he says. Look at it. He goes, you were dead in your trespasses. So dead in your sins, you as you once walked and you followed the course of this world. Meaning, what is the course of this world? The course of this world is what I think of uh, when you think Revelation uh, and you think about Babylon. So Babylon is something we talked about about a year ago in a series during the summer called Revelation. And here's Babylon. Babylon is anything that is in contradiction to the city of God, which is Jerusalem, the city of peace the city of God. And so there's a contradiction to God. God is peace. God is light. God is hope. God is love. God is perfect. God is pure. Anything that is in direct correlation to that is what we would think of as the course of this world. And so you can think sin, you can think darkness, you can think corruption. Instead of peace, there is hatred, there is dissension, there is factions, there are quarrels, there is selfishness, there is all of these things. That is the course of this world. And so as you look at the news, in which I have turned off uh, recently, I just don't watch it. Matter of fact, I was super surprised last night that a rainstorm moved in. My wife looked at me this morning, she's like, I was super surprised by that. And I was like, why were you super surprised? It's not like you had watched the news and it just popped up. 
we didn't watch the news, right? And so why have I stopped watching the news? Is because at some point I just go, I just don't have time for more of this, what? Stuff. It's the course of this world. It's why we turn off our news. It's because we see the factions, the quarrels, the hatred, the dissensions. We see the ramifications. We see death. We see disease. We see all that, which is all a part of the course of this world. And so when you think about course of this world, you can think evil. You should think organized world system led by a ruler. And you go, well, who's the ruler? The prince of the power of the air. Matter of fact, it says that it's following the course of this world, which is following the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air is Satan. He is the adversary. He is the diabolos. He is the accuser. He is the one that leads people to be sons of disobedience. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that anybody's ever called you on Father's Day and said, hey, happy Father's Day, you are a son of disobedience. That's, what, that's ultimately what the message is today. You and I are enemies of God. We are under his wrath. We are under his vindictive punishment. And that's who we are. Colossians 3.6 says that we are the sons of disobedience. And so the gospel message is not, hey, you are pretty good. And, hey, you have done some decent things in your life. The gospel message at its core is that you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. You are alienated and estranged from God. You follow the course of the world. You are a child of the devil, a prince of the power of the air. Welcome to Stone Point. We're glad you're here. That's what it is. Matter of fact, it's a little bit offensive because you're like, so you're telling me that I'm, I'm wicked and I'm vile and that I'm nasty. And, and I, no, I'm not telling you that. The Bible is. God is saying that we are alienated. Matter of fact, verse 3 says that we once lived in the passions of our flesh. And so what it's talking about to the church of Ephesus, he goes, look, there was a day when the church of Ephesus didn't exist and you followed Artemis. You followed the goddess of Diana. You got trapped and enslaved into monetary things. You were following the fornications of your flesh. You did things that were of your own pleasure and your own pursuit. You did things that were idolatrous against God. You did things that are contrary to the holiness of God. He goes, that's what you were. You formally did that. Why? Because you were a child of the devil, prince of the power of the air. You are a son of disobedience. You walked in your sin. That's what he says. In verse three, it says that it was the passions of our flesh. When you think about passions of our flesh, you cannot get out of your mind a Genesis three moment where Adam and Eve ultimately gave in to the passions of their flesh. Matter of fact, it was a delight to their eye and ultimately they thought it would be a, a, a delicacy and ultimately it would be a taste on their lips. It was an opportunity for them to give in to what they desired in their flesh. And ultimately, what did it bring? It brought condemnation, darkness, sin. We actually can thank Adam and Eve for a handful of things. One, childbearing pains. Two, death. Actual physical death, but also death and being separated from God forever. We can thank, thank him for our marriages being difficult because women now have a desire to, in a sense, rule over their husbands. We can also thank him that work is now laborious and hard and there are, there are now thorns and thistles in work. So what once was a pleasure to be with God has now created a separation and a chasm. We are separated from God. We are now children of the devil. We do what's right in our own eyes. And listen, that's how we're born. So last Saturday night, a week ago, 
we're having a conversation at our dinner table. It's one that I did not expect to take off. I didn't stage it in any way, but we're sitting down to dinner and we have uh, kind of the old school glass salt and pepper shakers sitting on the table. And Brady, my oldest, who's nine, pulls up the table and he goes, hey guys, let me tell y'all a story. And he takes the salt and the pepper shakers and he begins to tell a story. And he goes, hey, here's salt and here's pepper. But let me just tell you for a second to use your imagination. He goes, this salt is a representation of God. And God is perfect and he's pure and he's never sinned. He is holy in everything. And then there's this pepper that's black and that's us. And I'm like, tell me more, tell me more. He goes, well, we're wicked, we're vile, we're sinners. And he goes, and one day back in Genesis, there was Adam and Eve and they ate an apple. And I said, hold time out real quick. How do you know they ate an apple? I don't know. I just think they ate something that was fruit. And I was like, well, where did you get apple from? Because I never taught you apple boy, right? And uh, he's like, I don't know. I was like, okay, just call it fruit. I was just trying to throw a wrench into your plan. Uh, And so he goes, okay, now they were separated though because they chose to do evil. And so he takes the salt and the pepper and he creates this huge chasm and this big gap. And he goes, this is the problem, our sin. God is holy and perfect. We chose to sin against him and we're here. And I go, okay, now tell me how we get back. How do we get from here in our sin all the way back over here? And as he begins to kind of outline some of those things, he asked a really good question in which many of us at our stage in life have never thought about, let alone ask or know the answer to. And he said, I do have one problem with all of this. And he goes, I'm struggling to understand why I'm bearing a consequence for Adam and Eve. Like, why am I paying a consequence for their sin problem in the garden? And I said, that's a really good question. But I said, if you don't mind, can I just take you back to this afternoon? You remember when you sinned? Um, You remember doing this earlier, buddy? You remember doing this? Yeah, I do. Uh Uh-huh. I said, so here's the deal. You have consequences too, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I was like, yeah. And the reason why is because we are, in a sense, doing the passions of our flesh. Paul goes on, he says this, we carry out the desires of our body and our mind and it's because of that that we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now the reason I say that is because Paul goes, I want to set the stage for you. I don't want you walking out of a gospel conversation believing that somehow or another you're a decent guy. And here in East Texas, that's what we think. We think we're decent guys who grew up to be somewhat moral, that because we went to church, because we helped old ladies out with their groceries, that somehow we're okay. And what Paul explicitly says is, no, you're not okay. You're not good. You're not awesome. You're a sinner. You are, you are dead in your trespasses and you need a rescuer. You were alienated, you were estranged from God, you were evil. Jeremiah the prophet said it this way, he goes, your heart is sick, it is desperately sick and in need. So sick that no one can even understand that. Now what's crazy is is that's what he's trying to do. And he goes, and you are by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. And the reason he gives rest of mankind and the reason I underlined it is because you and I are like the rest of mankind. Like, God didn't go, oh, hey, everybody is afflicted with sin but you. You're somewhat a little bit better. Yeah, you're not as bad as the rest of them. Everybody else on the planet is afflicted with this condition, but you 
I mean, you're not that bad. And we approach sin that way. Like everybody else is pretty evil, but we're not that bad. And he goes, no, you are children of wrath. You were born into it. You do what's right in your own eyes and you've been like this forever. Now, ladies, lean in with me because I'm gonna give you an example that you can understand. Um, You remember when you had your first child um, and you were on a play date with one of your girlfriends. And so y'all decide, hey, let's go. And, and so you go to McDonald's, you go to a little play place. Um, you're eating your little hamburgers together and you're watching your little seven-month-old play together. And you are like in fairy tale land. You're like, how did this happen? We married the men of our dreams. We had children at the same time. I and mean, we talked about this in high school and it happened. And you're just like, you're loving life. And they're seven months old and they're playing right there before you at McDonald's. And you're just having a great time. You're catching up. And then all of a sudden, you see this encounter happen between these two children of yours. And you're like, we're just great friends. It's going to work out. But here's what happened is your little little girl um, reached out and she ripped something out of your best friend's little boy's hand. And then you see this little skirmish kind of begin to take place. And, and, then, and then when he rips it back, you see something happen. And it almost, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's possession, but it kind of looks like demonic possession. I mean, when she reaches back out, you see the evil just come over her eyes. And then there's something else that happens. He reaches out and he bites her in a way that you have never seen before. I mean, it leaves a mark in which you can't explain. It bruises up in the next few days. And here's what you think. Our friendship is over. I mean, how in the world are they going to forgive me for this? I mean, and you're just playing it all through your mind. And here's the question that you have to ask yourself in the exchange. Is who taught a child to steal? Who taught the natural instinct to protect themselves or to bite? Did you one day just decide that you're going to teach your three-year-old how to become a good liar? how to deceive you at every opportunity? And the answer is no. Here's why. It's because in our human condition, Paul is trying to help us realize that because we are ultimately estranged from God, born in the flesh, we have a heart problem that leads us towards sin. And the more that we lead ourselves into darkness, alienated under the prince of the power of the air, the more we become sons of disobedience. And what he says is, it's just a part of who you and I are. We are wired in our flesh to do what's right in our own eyes. And I don't know about you, but when we do things that are right in our own eyes, it leads to problems. It's James 4. James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among us? Do you not know that it's your own selfishness? At the end of the day, what makes me so selfish is my sin problem. And that's why... That's why a seven-month-old bites. It's why a one-year-old steals. It's why a two-year-old argue. That's why they have factions and quarrels. It's why three- and four- and five-year-olds lie. It's why seven-year-olds not only lie, but they'll cover it up and they'll blame it on a nine-year-old. And I didn't teach them any of that. They're their own masterminds. And the question is, how did that happen in the flesh? So I just want to give you a picture. That's what Paul is saying here. He goes, we are um, like the rest of mankind. And I know that all you ladies, when you see all that transpire at McDonald's between those two kids, your natural reaction is, son, I cannot believe you're like your dad already, right? (laughs) See, I think it's Father's Day, and so we should reverse that. 
But that's our natural response. Our natural response, and Kelly and I, my wife, have conversations all the time. We'll see something in our child, and, and one of our children will go, I'm not so sure if that's me or if that's you. And I think oftentimes while we kind of jokingly play around about that, what we really are seeing is a manifestation of the flesh in our kids' lives, knowing that the only way that they're able to approach anything in life for the glory of God is through the Spirit. And that's what our goal is, is that God would reach down in his mercy. And the reason why is because right now they're alienated and they're estranged not only in their sin, but there's something that Brady asked was really important. And he says, hey, here's the question. Why is it that I'm inheriting this guy's sin? And the reason is, is because the scripture tells us that. Uh, 1 John 3.10 says it this way. He goes, hey, it's evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is one who does not love his brother. He goes, if you want to look around you, you've got a world full of hatred. You've got a world full of strife. He goes, you can see who loves God and who doesn't. Matthew 7 would say it's an indication of bearing fruit. You either bear fruit and you see characteristics of God in someone's lives or you don't. Proverbs 22 verse 15, it says this about a child. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, meaning from the very beginning of our lives, sin is apparent. Psalm 51.5, David says it this way. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. It's just a part of who we are. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That's Brady's answer. Because of Adam and Eve, sin just took over the planet. And it's a challenge because now we walk around in darkness. And yes, I get it. Some of us think, well, maybe I'm not as bad as others. Many of us, we have become good. And one of the major defense systems that we have in our sin is masquerading how bad we really are. And so for so many of us, over the years, we've learned cover-up mode. And so we know what it's like to hide something or to keep somebody at a distance so they don't see everything that's actually going on in the depths of our heart. But the bottom line, it doesn't change the one thing that is true, and that is apart from God, we are sinners. So Romans 3.23 just says it this way, that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so that's us. That's the reality of everyone in this room. We're all sinners. But, verse 4, one of the biggest buts in the Bible, in case you didn't know there were big buts in the Bible, is verse 4. Look at this, but God. Look at this, but God. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So here's what he does. He goes, listen, just so you know who you are, he goes, you're a prince of the power of the air, you're a child of disobedience, you're a son of darkness, you're not in righteousness, you're a sinner, you're totally corrupt, there's nothing good about you, but here's the good news. You need to know there is something good about God. Because of his great love, even when you were dead, even when you were in darkness, he goes, there's a chance. Even when you are a liar and you're a corrupt, he goes, there's hope. Even when you um, are a thief or a drunkard or uh, even though you're addicted to all sorts of things, even though people don't even know the things that you do, he goes, there is a chance for you. And it's by grace that you've been saved. Wow, praise the Lord. There is grace for all of us. Romans 5, 6 through 11 says it this way. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the implication, what, what Paul's writing in the church of Rome, he goes, hey, listen, just so you know, like every now and then there might be somebody that'll stand up in the place and, and will we'll die for a decent person. But he goes, that doesn't really ever happen. I mean, that maybe every now and then, but, but he goes, can you fathom that somebody would actually stand in your place when there's nothing good about you? He goes, that's what God did. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm gonna die for my brother, a comrade in war, and you believe that there's something good about them. But he goes, what if you believe there's nothing good about a person? Like there's nobody that's gonna go and stand in the place on death row this coming up week and stand in the place of a convict that deserves that. You're not gonna do that. But he goes, but God does. God sees you at the very worst. He knows every intricate detail about you. And he goes, and he knows how wretched you are, but yet he chose to enter into that equation for you. He left the right hand of his father in the heavenly places. He made himself nothing, becoming a servant, taking on a bond servant in the form of dying on the cross for your, uh, for your sin problem, Philippians 2, became obedient to death so that you and I might have life. Cursed by the tree of the garden, he sets us free from the cross, uh, by the cross and the tree on Calvary. That's what he does. And he goes, because I'm rich in mercy. Romans 5 goes on a little bit more in verse 9. He goes, since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies and we were reconciled to God by death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So here's the point. Listen, because we're sinners, we deserve the full measure of the wrath of God. And it begs another really good question. What is the absolute worst place to ever be? And if I were to ask you the question, like what's the worst place you would ever be? If I were to ask that to my kids, here's what their response would be. Dad, it would be the worst thing to go to hell. And that's not the worst place. The worst place to ever be is in the presence of God without Jesus on your side. Hell is nothing compared to being in the holiness and the presence of God without Jesus, your mediator, your high priest, and the one who reconciles you to a holy God. The worst place you could ever be is in the presence of God in your sin problem because he would mow you down in, a min- in just an instant. You could not stand, you could not understand the glorious presence of God, but yet Jesus says, I'll make a way. That's the worst place you could ever be. But here's what we've done. Listen to me. Listen, lean in with me. We have taught ourselves and we have taught people around us, even our precious little kids, as we sit around the dinner plate, the worst place you could ever be on planet earth is hell. We don't want you to go to hell. And so why don't we go to heaven? And so if you don't mind, just tell Jesus real quick to forgive you your sin, to come into your heart and to live forever. And here's the problem is that we do that when we're nine and we look up when we're 39 and we've absolutely had no life change. And here's the life change. The reason it hasn't happened is because we didn't understand why Jesus died in the first place. And so as we sit around the dinner table, we have a conversation with salt and pepper. It's a very clear picture of the gospel. The one thing that my kids must answer before we'll baptize them in the presence of our church body is this question. Why did Jesus die? Because see, you and I grow up in a church culture that we know he died. If I asked, hey, why did Jesus come? You would say, just as every other person in this room would say, Jesus died for my sin problem. The problem is we've never been able to answer why. 
Why did Jesus die? Because he loves me. That's not why Jesus died. Jesus didn't die on the cross because he loved you. Jesus died on the cross to vindicate the wrath of God. The wrath of God has to be poured out on humanity and you will either experience that in judgment separated from God forever and eternity or you will experience that yourself or Jesus can experience it on your behalf and he can reconcile you to God because of what he's done for you. Listen, my fear, please hear me. My fear is way too many of us came to know Jesus at church camp, asked him into our heart, asked him to forgive us of our sins and we walked throughout life not even understanding why it was that he died. He died so that he may take the wrath and the punishment and the vindication of God upon himself that he may set sinners in darkness, estranged and alienated from God in their flesh from the very beginning of their conception so he could set you free. That's why he died. Which if you understand the magnitude of why he died and it's beyond just a prayer that we ask forgiveness for, then it changes our entire life because you cannot experience the freedom of, of such a, a magnitude of sin and then just kind of walk aimlessly however we want. You can't do that. It is contrary to the gospel, which is one of the most dumbfounding things that we've experienced in ministry around here is how could somebody claim to have known Jesus for 40 years and still be kind of wallowing in the same thing. And here's what's hard for people that have been believers for four or five or six or seven years here. They're going, I don't understand it because God has set me free and I don't go back to all the things I used to go to. So what's happening? Is the spirit more at work in my life? And I think here's what's happened. Listen, so many of us don't understand why Jesus died. Jesus died to appease the wrath of God, the punishment, to no longer make us children of the devil, but to separate us um, and ultimately make us free in Christ. That's what he does. Rich in mercy, died in our place for our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. Verse six, and raised us up in him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.20 says this way, he made us citizens of the kingdom of God. And listen, citizens of the kingdom of God, they begin to live in a way that's different than the rest of the world. So the rest of the world lives in darkness, we live in light. The rest of the world, they're children of the flesh, we are now children of the spirit. The rest of the world is under wrath because of their flesh and ultimately we are children of peace. They are clothed in sin, we're clothed in Christ. Do you see the difference? Some are enemies of God and some are friends of God. Some are strange from God and others are brought near through the blood of Christ. Some are orphans and strangers and some are now adopted into his family. That's what Jesus has done. We were dead and yet we've been made alive. We were broken and sick and now we've been healed. We were lepers, now we're brought to Christ and we're spotless. We were once lame, we now walk. We were once blind, we now see. Y'all see what the gospel does? The gospel says, you were dead, you were nasty and vile. Christ took the wrath, appeased God, stood in your place, now you can be set free. And the question that you ask yourself is, well, how do, I, how, do, how do I get set free? I know I gotta do something. And that's where I bought the lie. Grew up in a conservative fundamental church. And the thing I wrestled with the most in my life is there's gotta be more for me to do. There's gotta be more for me to do. There's gotta be more for me to do. And the answer is, what is it that you and I do? Verse seven answers all of it. The reason he sets us free is so that in the coming ages, we might show the immeasurable riches 
of the grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So he wants to show us more than the here and now. He wants us to live in him, to be rooted and built up in him, strengthen the faith as we've been taught, overflowing with thankfulness, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. He desires that for us as citizens of the kingdom. But in order for us to understand, he's got to shine his light on us, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And as he does that, we understand the gospel. And it's verse 8 and 9. Here's the gospel. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So at the end of the day, how, and how do you and I come to know Jesus? Here it is. It's by the grace and the love and the kindness of God. Here it is. He being rich in mercy, loved us. Even while we were sinners, he died for us. And he goes, all you have to do is put your faith in me. Oh, that seems way too simple. Just put your faith in me. Yeah, put your faith in me. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says it this way. It just says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. As I'm talking about this the other day, uh, it, Brady goes, I, I'm, I do that. Like, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what you're, I mean, I believe in Jesus and I believe he died. So like, am I good to go to heaven? And then that begs the question. I go, go, is the goal Brady to go to heaven? He goes, of course I want to go to heaven. I was like, I know, but why? And I loved his response because that's where God is. I think what we've done is, in a sense, we've separated heaven and God. We think if we go to heaven, well, what a pleasure. But listen, heaven is not a pleasure if God is not there. So what we want is we want our kids to know God, and we want them to get to God because of his glorious son, who is the substitute in our place. He transferred us his righteousness and he took on all of our sin. It's this incredible uh, theological word called imputation. He imputed us his righteousness and he took on our unrighteousness. That's what he does. And he goes, and all you have to do is believe in me, trust in me, and follow me. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is, I'm not good. I'm messed up. Matter of fact, I'm really jacked up. But God, being rich in mercy, loved me enough to send his son to die on a sinner's cross for me, that if I will look to him high and lifted up, be born again, as he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he goes, I can have eternal life and I can be with God forever. That's the goal. And so the cool thing is, is that we don't work our way to God. I had a conversation with a guy a few years ago and uh, I think we had about a two-hour lunch, and at the end of it, I think we were convinced uh, of two different things. He thought, I'm a pretty good guy, not done that much wrong, and I'm like, no, that's not what the Bible says, dude. The Bible says that you're not a good guy and that you've done plenty wrong, and we just couldn't come to an agreement on that. He's like, no, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. And I'm like, okay, well, good guys don't, good guys don't go to heaven. You all understand that? Good guys don't go to heaven. What, what does saved guys go to heaven? Saved guys are with God. And so that's what we're looking for. And then when he saves us, he begins to sanctify us, Philippians 1. He begins a work into us and he'll carry it into completion. When you think about that, what does that even look like? It means he's preparing us for his work. For his work here, all into glory. So listen, in glory, heaven, when we get there, we're gonna work. It's going to be returned to work. So Adam and Eve, they worked. There were no thorns and thistles. It was enjoyable. They were in the presence of God and they did what was not right in their eyes, but they did what was right in the Lord's eyes. They honored him and they worked. Guess what? God's creating us to be his workmanship. The workmanship, when you look at it in the Greek, just means that it's his piece of art. We were his piece of art. 
He's going to recreate it and he's going to make us new. And we would be prepared for his good works in which God prepared beforehand and we're going to walk in them. He's going to make us a new creation. That's the goal so that we may bring glory and honor to him forever and ever and ever. And so I got two questions for you. Number one is if you're a believer in Christ and you say, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I know him, then the question I have for you is how well are you doing it living for him? The second question I want to ask you is for everybody in the room as well. And that is, if I were to ask you personally on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the highest, one being the lowest in terms of confidence. If you were positive that you would die and go to be with the Lord today, if you would say a 10 in your mind, okay, then why? But if you would say a nine or eight or a seven or a six or anything less, then the question is why there as well? And here's what I want to ask you a question on. As you think about that and you contemplate that, that's really the point of today's message. I want, I want to follow up with you. I, I want to help you have confidence in who God is on your behalf. Because oftentimes when we think about that scale of one to 10, if you think about an eight, you know how most people answer that? They say, well, I think it's an eight. And I'll go, why? And they'll go, well, because there's a few things I still must do. And then they'll give me a list of things they should do, and then they'll, they'll have a list of things they should omit. And they, that's what the, the tension is. They wrestle with that. But the question is, is, is that really the gospel? The gospel is, is that Jesus has done it all. And so if he saves us, even in our sin, we should have utmost confidence before God, not because of us, or because of what we've done, or what we will do, or what we should stop doing, but ultimately because of who Jesus is. And maybe you're here today and you go, you know what? I've got a lot of questions. Like you have just blown up my theory on what I think about God and the Bible. Or maybe you're here and you go, actually, you didn't just blow it up. Like you kind of frustrated me. You've offended me a little bit. Listen, I would love to talk through that. Or maybe you're here and you go, listen, I, I need what you have. I want more answers. I want more dialogue. I want more conversation. Listen, I want to help you with that. We here at Stone Point want to equip you in that. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do, okay? This is the last part of our message. I encourage everybody to do it. I need everybody in this room, if you will, including Edgewood Campus, reach out and grab what you call a communication card. Just grab one right in front of me. Please, everybody do that for me. Just grab a communication card. And here's what I want, okay? Not everybody is going to follow up with that, but here's what some of you are. And here's what I want you to do. If you're in this room and you would say that I... I don't have 100% confidence if I were to die today and go and be in the presence of God, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your name on that card. And when you look at the communication card on the back side of it, there are several next steps. The two that are most important to me today and the ones I want to follow up with are the last two. And so one of them just says, I'd like to talk to someone about becoming a Christ follower. And then the last one beyond that is, I'd like more information about the next baptism celebration. Look, baptism has nothing to do with our salvation, has everything to do about declaring what God has done in our lives. But if you're here and you're like, I feel confident that I know Jesus, have followed him, will be with him forever, but I want to take that next step, please check that box for me. But if you're here today and you go, look, I don't know really where I stand with God in terms of my eternal security. I really don't know for sure what it looks like for me to trust and follow him or if I've really ever done that. I don't bear a whole lot of fruit. If people look at my life, the way I do business, the way I treat my wife, the way I, I speak at the workplace, people wouldn't characterize me as a man of God. Then I want you to put 
on there that you would like to have some conversation about following Christ. And here's what I'd like to do. I'd just like to have a conversation. We'd like to follow up with you and make sure that you know who Jesus is and about the grace he offers us. Now, there's some of you in this, this room that you're like, I'm going to check that, and, and I hope that you'll follow up with me, and we will. But here's even more than that. There's some of you in this room, you're like, I can't wait for a phone call a week from now. I need to visit with someone today. So as soon as this message is over, we're going to pray on both campuses, and I'm going to make myself available here, and Pastor Brian will be available on the Edgewood campus. I'm going to be right here down at the front, and so feel free that as we sing a song that you can come, and I would love to talk with you, encourage you in the Word, pray with you, however you would like me to help you respond in faith to God, I'd like you to do that. If you don't come and find me or have a conversation, I would like you to take this communication card. If you've put a next step on the back, then please put your name on the front. It's hard to follow up with someone if I don't have a name, right? Put a name, put a phone number or email, whatever the best way to begin our dialogue together, and then stick that in one of our offering boxes. You can put it on an offering box on either campus, and we will call you this week, and we will set up a time where we can have spiritual conversation about a God who loves you so much. And here's the deal. What you might have heard today is, man, you're just nasty and wicked and vile. And while that is the truth, the thing I want you to hear more than anything is that God loves you, and he cares about you. And he cares so much for you that he's already made a way, and he's already won the victory for you in Christ Jesus. A perfect life, a sinner's death, so that you may be set free. And I want you to experience that more than anything. Why? Because that's what God desires for you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the grace in which you've lavished on us. Uh, Lord, you tell us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God, you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were sinners, you died for us. When we uh, were children of darkness, when we were lying, uh, when we were stealing, when we were biting our friends, when we were just seven months old, Lord, you already had a plan for us. You had already planned to call us, to you. You had already uh, made a way through your son Jesus, his death and his burial and his resurrection uh, on the cross. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that we would have some conversation and result of what we've heard today. And I pray today uh, that men would walk out of this room and instead of feeling beat down uh, by a gospel message, I pray they would be highly encouraged because even though we are not great dads in our flesh. We can be excellent dads when we're set free in the spirit. The reason that I can be a good dad is because of you and your son. Romans seven eighteen says that everything uh, that's good about me is because of you. And so, Lord, I thank you that I have you, and I thank you for your spirit and its leadership in my life, and I pray that today you would set many people free from their sin into a new life with Christ. We love you, we thank you, and we ask this in the glorious, wonderful name above Jesus, the name above all names. Amen.